You can turn with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke 23, please. Going to a ball game can be a thrilling experience. People are hyped to see their team play, and you head into the stadium with a crowd of people who are all equally excited. The energy is palpable, and you're there for one reason. Your attention is all focused on the game and your team. But if you were to stop watching and turn to start looking at the crowd around you, you would begin to see an incredible variety of people. In this sea of faces, you've got the fanatic who shouts and screams. You've got the distracted parent who tries to keep their children in check as the game's going on. You've got the uninterested fiancé who's only there because of her significant other. There are the young and the old. There are the rich and the poor. There are the supporters and the opponents. A spectacle brings a lot of people together. And it brings a lot of very different people together. And in our text, Luke describes a sea of faces that are surrounding a terrible spectacle. Luke 23, beginning with verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other 
rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This is God's word for us today. This is it. This is the point. This is what everything has been leading to. This is the destined day. Throughout his entire narrative, Luke has been pointing us to this scene. And now he packs it full. It's full of faces. There are more characters in this scene than you can keep up with. I count at least 12 different groups or individuals And it's as if this scene captures every kind of person that Luke has been highlighting throughout his gospel. You may remember that back in the spring, when we went through two overview sermons of the gospel of Luke, I mentioned that one of the key themes of this book is that Jesus saves sinners of all kinds. And in this scene, we find people of all kinds. But the scene is also packed full of themes. It's as if all of the streams that have been flowing through Luke come and align right here. You've got themes like king and kingdom, repentance, the temple, responses to Jesus, and fulfillment 
of what has been predicted in the Old Testament. And in fact, if you could double-click on almost any sentence in this scene, you would find an Old Testament passage underneath it. Either a quote or a reference or an allusion. They're packed in here. Why? Because this is the day. This is the point. This is what all of human history and all of Luke's gospel has been pointing to. And so we come to the destined day. Three words to highlight three different scenes in this text. Hardship, salvation, identification. A scene toward the cross, a scene on the cross, and a scene from the cross. First, hardship. Hardship is coming. Pilate delivers Jesus over to the Jewish leaders and people to be crucified. And you may remember, if you were here with us last week, that a condemned person had to carry their crossbeam to the place of execution. But in verse 26, it's apparent that as they lead him away, Jesus is unable to bear the beam. And Luke doesn't tell us why. But he did tell us that Pilate was going to have Jesus whipped or scourged. And from history, we know that that in itself would be enough to kill a person. So that, combined with a sleepless night the night before, and Jesus' agony in the garden on the Mount of Olives, would all mean that he is exhausted. He can hardly walk, let alone carry the beam. And so Luke offers us this seemingly random sentence in verse 26, that they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. We don't know who this guy is. He seems to appear out of nowhere. He may have had no clue what was going on in the city. He's just walking in on a Friday morning and he gets swept into this terrible event. But this seemingly chance encounter shows us that followers will bear the cross. Followers will bear the cross. You notice the wording. They laid on Him, and they don't specify Jesus' cross. They laid on Him the cross. And where did he carry it? Behind Jesus. Simon was following. And in this, we get a picture of Jesus' previous teaching in Luke. That if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And elsewhere, Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. So Luke doesn't give us any further information about Simon. He appears and disappears. But Mark, in his gospel, describes Simon as the father of Rufus and Alexander. Why that detail? Because it might have been that the readers of these gospels would know 
Rufus and Alexander and even Simon. They might know them as followers of Christ in the early Christian community. So it's possible that this man who encountered Jesus learned to follow Jesus. And brothers and sisters, as we gaze on this Lord who walks to his cross, let us remember that this is our path too. He has called us to the same road. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. But this is not the only hardship which Luke describes. His second hardship is that unbelievers will bear judgment. Look down at verse 27. As Jesus heads out of Jerusalem, there's a crowd following him. And in that crowd are a number of women who are wailing at these terrible events. But in this moment, Jesus cares more for them than he does for himself. And so he turns to the wailing women and he offers them a warning. Do you remember that just a few days before this, as Jesus rode into the city, he stopped as he looked down on it and he wailed over the city. Why? Because, as he predicted, Jerusalem would fall because they rejected their king. And now, as Jesus leaves the city, he offers another prediction of the fall of Jerusalem. He tells them, don't weep for me. If you, know, if you knew what was coming, you would weep for yourselves and for your children. Verse 29, he says, the days are coming. What days? The days of destruction. These are the days Jesus described in earlier chapters when enemies would surround the city of Jerusalem and would tear it down and would slaughter its inhabitants. And so he says to them, people in those days will actually say, blessed are the women who never had children. Well, that sounds heartless. In Israel and in many cultures, a woman who had no children would be embarrassed and even shamed. She was pitied by her community. But Jesus says, in that terrible day of destruction, it will be better for you not to have had children than to watch your children be slaughtered. And he adds another description in verse 30. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. This is a quotation from the prophet Hosea. So turn with me back to Hosea, right after the prophet Daniel. Hosea is one of the shorter prophets. Hosea chapter 10. If you're familiar with Hosea, you know that he is confronting the idolatry of Israel. He's equating the nation of Israel to an unfaithful wife. A woman who has run away from her husband and has shacked up with a bunch of lovers. Israel is like that. She has left her God, her husband, 
and she has shacked up with a whole lot of lovers, pagan nations and their idols. And because of that, that unfaithfulness, God is going to judge Israel. Hosea 10, verse 7. God says through the prophet, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. So basically, the places where you worshipped your idols are going to be torn down. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, because they're not going to be used anymore. And they, the people, shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. God's judgment on his idolatrous, rebellious people will be so terrible that his people will want the mountains to fall on them and crush them so they can escape. And this same wording is picked up at the end of the Bible, at the end of human history in the book of Revelation, when God's final wrath falls upon wicked humanity. And the people who are experiencing that wrath call for mountains to fall on them and crush them. So what is Jesus telling these women in Luke? He's telling them that the coming destruction of Jerusalem will be the end of the world in miniature. It will be so bad that they will get a glimpse or a taste of the end, the wrath of God in the final day. And then he adds this really interesting sentence in verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What is he saying? Essentially, he tells them, if this is what happens to me, the righteous one, the living tree, how bad will it be when fire falls on rebellious, dry wood. If I experience the wrath of God now, how much worse will it be for those who are unrighteous in that day? And so friend, to you who may not yet believe in Jesus, remember that judgment is coming. Fire will fall. Wrath will come. And when it does, it will be so awful that you may beg to be annihilated in order to escape it. But there is no escape. Because either you embrace the cross now, or you drink the wrath in the end. If the righteous one bore God's wrath on the cross, do you think you will escape God's wrath on your rule-breaking and pride and sin? So even as Jesus heads to the cross, he offers one more invitation to people to turn from their own ways and to turn to him Hardship is coming. The question is, which hardship will you experience? Will you embrace the cross and follow the Son? Or will you reject the Son and be consumed by God's wrath? There is no third choice.
Hardship is coming. But second, salvation is here. Salvation is here. Verses 32 and following. You may remember that back around Easter of this year, I talked about Easter eggs throughout Luke. The little hints, the little hidden glimpses of what's coming. And throughout his narrative, Luke has been planting little things for us to catch so that we might see what's coming. And we have seen Jesus save before now. We've seen him do little salvations like healing the bleeding woman or healing the blind man. We've seen him forgive the prostitute and the tax boss, Zacchaeus. Jesus even declared the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But now, on the cross, we see the fullness of salvation. We see salvation clearly. Luke, interestingly, gives hardly any details about the physical torture which Jesus experienced. His point is not for us to be absorbed with the gore, although this would have been a hideous scene. But his point is that we would be absorbed with what is happening on the cross and because of the crucifixion. So three questions about this salvation. What is offered? What is offered? And in this scene, we look at the people at the foot of the cross. At the place of the execution, verse 33, the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. They impale Jesus' hands to the crossbeam and they raise the crossbeam from the ground and fix it to the pole and then they impale his feet to the pole. And there he hangs between two criminals. And as he hangs, people watch and rulers scoff and soldiers mock. And what is their mockery? Well, the rulers continue their derision of Jesus in verse 35. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. If he is the real deal, if he's God's chosen and anointed king, let him prove it by coming down. And the soldiers join in in verses 36 and 37. They kind of taunt him with something to drink. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Right, you're a king. Come on, prove it. Come down. And the irony is that over this whole scene, stands the description of Jesus' guilt. And what is the banner? What is the placard that's over his head, nailed to his cross? This is the king of the Jews. And it's as if that statement mocks the mockers. You have no idea who you're talking about. You have no idea who you are scoffing. You have no idea who you are taunting. He is the king. And what does this king offer? 
Does he call down condemnation on those who blaspheme him? Does he call down fire from heaven on those who are mocking? Verse 34, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The salvation which Jesus brings is forgiveness. Forgiveness even to those who in that moment were mocking and taunting and blaspheming Him. Salvation is the forgiveness of all of our wicked crimes. Salvation is forgiveness for all of our lustful thoughts. Salvation is forgiveness for all of our rebellion against the God who made us. Do you think that God cannot forgive you? Do you think you are too far gone? Look at who he prays for. Look at who this forgiveness is offered to. What mercy this is. What kindness this is. That the one who owns us, who made us, and yet who we sin against and who we mock would extend forgiveness to us. That is undeserved favor. But who receives this forgiveness? That's the second question. Who receives it? Luke has been showing us those on the ground, but now he turns the focus to those on the crosses. One of the criminals joins in the blasphemy. Yeah, that's right. If you are who you say, then get down and get us down. But the other criminal shuts him down. He rebukes him and essentially says, shut your mouth. Don't you know that you're facing death? You're about to meet your maker. How dare you say such a thing? And then he confesses. We're dying rightly. We deserve to be here. We deserve to suffer for our sins. But this man has done nothing wrong. And once more, Luke echoes this theme. Jesus is innocent. But then the criminal turns. Oh yes, he is fixed in position. But he turns to the man on the middle cross. He turns from his sin. He turns from his own way. He turns from any attempt to try to gain God's favor. He knows there's no time left for that. And so he just turns and he says, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a simple request. Not an elaborate prayer. Not a ritualistic confession. It's a desperate ask. Remember me. He believes that Jesus is the king. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows Jesus is the king. And he knows that Jesus is his only hope. And between tortured and ragged breaths, Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus speaks with authority. Truly, 
I have the authority to determine the eternal destiny of people. I am the king. But he also speaks with relationship. You will be with me. Not just in a place. Not just in a nice location. But with me. And can you imagine the hope that this simple statement offered to this criminal on the cross? He is in agony. He is suffering for crimes that he knows he's committed. He knows that he has nothing that will earn him a place before God. He is staring death in the face and he doesn't know how many hours he has left. And as he looks into eternity, he doesn't know what the afterlife holds for him. So that short reply from Jesus opens up a world of hope to him. He will let me be with him in paradise? The place is not the point. The place is not the reward. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the reward. The agony is indescribable, but it will be over soon and then he will be with Jesus forever. And this is why I said that salvation is here. Yes, salvation is here because at the cross we see what salvation is. That it is forgiveness. But in another sense, salvation is here because Jesus himself is here. He is our salvation. Without him, there is no forgiveness. There is no hope. There is no eternal joy. So what is the salvation that he offers it is the forgiveness of all our crimes. And who gets this forgiveness? The repentant. Those who turn. Who turn to the one who is their only hope. Third question. So what is the result of this salvation? Verses 44 and 49. Once again, Luke's focus shifts. He was looking at the people at the foot of the cross. Then he looked at the ones on the crosses. And now he zooms way out so that we see the whole scene from a distance. And here we watch God's wrath fall. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. Jesus has been gasping on the cross for a couple of hours already. It's noon. The sun is at its peak. And then there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From noon until three o'clock, the sun goes dark. For three hours, the land is plunged into blackness. Why? What's happening? Well, can you think of another time in Scripture when a land was plunged into darkness? Some of you may remember it was the ninth plague on the land of Egypt when that rebellious and wicked nation would not let God's people of Israel go from slavery. And after eight different plagues, God plunges the whole nation into blackness to judge them for their wickedness. But centuries after that, 
one of God's prophets spoke to God's people about darkness. Turn with me to Amos chapter 5. Another one of the shorter prophets, minor prophets. Amos chapter 5. This time, it is God's people, Israel, who are the wicked, who are the rebellious. They have turned against the God who brought them out of slavery. They've not obeyed Him or loved Him. So now, God is pronouncing judgment on His own people. And what does He say, what does the prophet say in Amos 5, verse 18? Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against a wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? What is the prophet talking about? Apparently, the people of God wanted to see the day of the Lord because they thought that that would bring their nation's prosperity once again. And the prophet says, that day, the day of the Lord, brings judgment as well as God's vindication. So when you're asking for the day of the Lord, you don't know what you're asking for. It brings darkness and judgment. Turn maybe one page over to Amos 8. Amos 8 and verse 9. Once again, the Lord says to his people, Amos 8, 9, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. When the day of the Lord comes, his judgment falls. And when his judgment falls, blackness falls. So what Luke is showing us at the cross is the day of the Lord. No, it is not the final day when God's wrath falls upon wicked humanity, but it is the day of the Lord when His wrath falls upon sin on His Son at the cross. And so for three unspeakable hours, Jesus drinks the wrath of God in the blackness. And Luke offers no other words than that one sentence. Because words cannot capture what happened in those three hours. Wrath falls on a willing son. Look at verse 46. At the end of that time, Jesus shouts, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was not forced into death. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. To the very end, he was entrusting himself to his father. He was the willing son. And wrath also falls on an innocent one. Because when the centurion in charge saw Jesus die, verse 47, he said, certainly this man was innocent. Luke drives home the point again. Jesus was innocent. He did not die for anything that he had done. He died 
for the sins of mankind. But what else happened in the darkness? What else happened as wrath fell? What else happened when Jesus died? Verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Why does Luke include that little statement? He's talked about the temple throughout his gospel, but why this statement here? This week, somebody asked me, if you went into the temple after the curtain was torn, would you still die? And I said, that's a great question. Hold that thought until Sunday. What's the question getting at? Well, for those of you who may, who may not understand, why would you die if you walked into the temple if the curtain was torn? To answer that question and to answer why the curtain was torn, we need to remember what the curtain was there for. So turn to Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9. The sermon to the Hebrews talks about the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. It talks about the transition from the old ways that the nation of Israel approached God to the way that people now approach God. So, you may be familiar with the fact that in the nation of Israel, they had a tent, a meeting place called the tabernacle. And later in their history, they constructed a permanent building called the temple. Both of these places were representations of where God's presence dwelt on the earth. There at the tabernacle, there at the temple, was the hot spot of God's presence. That's where you went if you were going to meet with God. The problem is that sinful people can't be in the presence of a holy God. So, the tabernacle had sections, and the temple had sections. The ordinary people could only be in the outside courtyard. Then, inside the tabernacle, there was an initial section, section one, where the priests regularly went to do their duties. But then there was a second section behind a curtain that was the most holy place where God's presence dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant. And there, only one person went, and only one time a year, because you can't get into the presence of God with sin. Hebrews 9, verse 6. These preparations, this building, this construction, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year. And how does he go in? Not without taking blood. He has to take blood. Why? Which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You have to have blood to cover your sins if you're going to be in the presence of a holy God. Verse 8, by this, by all of that in the Old Testament, 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, so there's something that's being shown by that tabernacle, by that temple. The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, not the holy place, but the holy places, that the way into it is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And what's the first section? It's symbolic for the present age. So, the tabernacle has these two sections. The first section is symbolic of where we are. The second section is symbolic of God's holy presence. And that was a model. The tabernacle and the temple were little models to show us how do you get to God. The only way you get to God is by having your sins covered by blood. So what is happening when the curtain temple, when the temple curtain is torn. Flip over to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, wait, what curtain? That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what should we do? Let us draw near. Guess what? We get to get in. And we get to get in because we are covered not by the blood of an animal. And we don't just get to get in once a year. We get to get into the holiest places because our sins are covered once for all by the blood of Jesus Christ. So there is no more need for a tabernacle and a temple. There's no more need for sacrifices because the perfect sacrifice has been offered. There's no more need for the priests of Levi because a perfect priest has come. There's no more need for a building or a location where you meet with God because the person who is the temple has come. And through him, we meet with God. The curtain was torn to show that the way into God's presence is opened for all who will come through Jesus. And so now, there is still a curtain in place, but that curtain's name is Jesus Christ. And so, if you will not come to Jesus, he is a barrier for you. But if you will come through Jesus' flesh, through his curtain, you can come into the very presence of God and be accepted by him. So the tabernacle and the temple were just little pictures. They're just little echoes that give us a picture of the greater reality that we know now. So would you still die if you went into the temple after the curtain was torn? No. No. Because the temple now is a hollow shell. You don't go there to meet with God. You go through Jesus to meet with God. And God's presence now is not in a building somewhere. It's in his people. Always and forever. So Jesus offers salvation to those who repent. 
He offers forgiveness of sins to those who come to Him. And He offers fellowship with a holy God because He covers us with His blood. And so, all those who come to Jesus are with God. But now that Jesus is dead on the cross, how will His followers respond? And so we turn briefly to our third header identification will happen. Followers own their king. Followers own their king. As Jesus dies on the cross, did you see this in verse 49? Some of his acquaintances stand at a distance watching. They're far off. But in contrast to those in verse 50, we meet a man named Joseph who gets his hands dirty. He's apparently a pretty important man. Verse 50 tells us he's an influential man, a man of the council. But he, he must have been at the meetings where they decided Jesus' fate, but he did not agree with their decision or action, verse 51, because he was looking for the kingdom of God. And apparently he knew that Jesus was the king, God's king. So what does he do? Verse 52. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That would have been an unusual request because bodies of criminals, especially crucified criminals, would often get chucked in a mass grave or just thrown out for the scavenging animals. People didn't come and ask for a body of these kinds of criminals. So this request would have drawn attention to Joseph. And frankly, the Jewish leaders and and the council members that he's a part of, they would probably have thought, wait, we're trying to get rid of Jesus, and here you are trying to come and rescue his body? What are you doing? The spotlight would be on Joseph. But what does he do? Look at the tenderness that Luke describes in verse 53. He took the body down. It's almost like this moves into slow motion. He took the body down. He wrapped it in a linen shroud. And he laid him in a tomb cut in stone. What's he doing? The disciple is owning his Lord. He's identifying with him. He's caring for him even in death. Followers own their king. But second, followers witness the truth. Verse 55, some women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Well, why does Luke share those details? Why does that matter? Some women saw the tomb. What's the point? Do you remember at the very beginning of Luke's gospel what he said his purpose was for writing? Here's what he said. It seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So friends, what is Luke doing through these details? He's giving us certainty. He's giving us eyewitness evidence that this really happened. Maybe you're skeptical of the historic claims of Christianity 
that there was a man who died and then came back to life again? Wait, what? There are some people who argue that Jesus didn't really die. He fainted on the cross. People thought he was dead. They took him down. They put him in a grave. And then he woke up and recovered. But the Romans knew execution. The Romans knew death. And they're not going to let a guy off the cross before he's dead. Some people argue that the body which went missing later wasn't Jesus' body. You know, if he's in a mass grave, bodies get mixed up all the time. Or if he gets put in a tomb where they have these alcoves for all these bodies, then who knows which body got taken out. I mean, he could get mixed up. But Jesus' body wasn't thrown in a mass grave. His body was put in a particular tomb, and it was put in a tomb where no other bodies were. And it was seen by multiple eyewitnesses. So we Christians affirm truths which have been passed down to us by people who saw it. By people who knew it. Our faith is not shrouded in mystery. It is historic fact, which is well-known, documented, and witnessed. So do not let flimsy arguments overthrow your faith or keep you from faith. And brothers and sisters, I will say to us at the end, are we aligning with Jesus? Over and over again, Luke has been telling us through his gospel that identifying with Jesus is costly. He is, after all, a crucified king. It was costly, not comfortable, for Simon to carry the beam after Jesus. It was costly, not comfortable, for Joseph to own his Lord after his death. And it will be costly, not comfortable, for you if you identify with Jesus. So where does that need to happen? Jesus is the king who saves many kinds of sinners. He draws them into fellowship with the holy God and he transforms sinners into followers so that we will come after him and take up our cross and identify with him. He's a king who is worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for laying down your life for us. Thank you for suffering the wrath of God for us. Thank you for bearing our sins away. Thank you for offering us forgiveness. And I pray that you would help us who know you to follow hard after you, even to embrace the cross, to embrace the cost, and to be willing to identify with you. Give us courage to do that. Give us faith to do that. Give us help to do that by your Spirit. We ask in your name. Amen.